It is another blessed occasion. We've each been given to assemble this Sunday afternoon, this another occasion on the first day of the week. And we're each delighted for the opportunity that God has given us to assemble in the way that we are. An hour of peacefulness, tranquility, but yet an hour on which we can focus on those matters eternal in character and divine in structure. You may have noted, of course, that the bulletin also made announcement with respect to the title of the lesson this evening, Spirits in Prison. And tonight, as we give some consideration to that text in 1 Peter chapter 3, Brother James read from that text a moment ago, I'd encourage you to turn back to that location if you have moved from it, and let's devote the next few moments tonight to reflecting upon this passage, which has caused no small amount of controversy and challenge, even perhaps difficulty, in the consideration of some in light of this little five-chapter book. This opening slide is an introductory one. It will motivate us, or I hope to at least move us along the way, to begin to think about this passage before us. Each of us know very, very well that one of the marching orders given to, of course, the church of the day today, to individual Christians, surrounds the topic of this. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And therefore, each of us serve beneath the umbrella, serve beneath the requirement placed upon us to rightly divide the Word of God, to properly dissect it, if you please, putting passages together as God would have us to do, and use it to set forth the truth of heaven. Tonight, as we come face to face with a passage that, upon first reading, is a bit on the challenging side, and because of that, it has, again, caused some consideration of challenge, even some very difficult days in the history of the Restoration Movement. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, the controversy that surrounds this has to do with those spirits in prison. Some questions might be these, who are these spirits? Where is this prison spoken of? And what implication does it have for Jesus? because the name of Christ is actually attached rather closely to it. The next slide will start us on the more directed journey before us tonight, asking us to note with care the passage itself. Quite often you'll notice as I develop lessons, that's one of the opening parts in many cases, to literally look at the passage. It's never our desire to read into it what's not there, to use it to teach what is not taught in the, in the passage itself. So what does the passage say? First of all, notice the book in which it's found. The book of 1 Peter, five chapters, not that far from the end of the New Testament, at least in terms of placement. But in that passage, you'll notice verse 17 mentioned a word, suffer. You might take note, that's the key word of the entire book of 1 Peter. In fact, 16 times, you'll appreciate rather... Amazingly, that word is used in five chapters. Peter wrote to individuals who themselves were suffering beneath a load of challenge and difficulty. Persecution was paramount. Often individuals were placed in circumstances exceedingly challenging to the Christian faith. And yet as that took place, the opening verse in the book, in fact, highlights it was written to strangers that were dispersed abroad. There had been a flight of persecution... And as a result thereof, Christians had, of course, for safety's sake, moved to differing locations. As they did so, they needed to maintain their fidelity to Jesus 
and of course their allegiance to truth. You'll notice as you come then to verse number 18, the very passage before us again reads like this, For Christ also has once suffered. Christian, do you think you've suffered? Don't ever forget the one that died for you, he suffered too. Don't ever forget that he knows exactly what you're going through. He went through it too. And not only did he go through it, he now reigns supreme over those who would be faithful to him. And so even in the darkest hours of suffering, don't ever forget Jesus suffered. You'll notice furthermore, that brings us immediately to the remainder of this passage. Let's read it again. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure wherein to even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven, and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, being made subject unto Him." as you just listen to the reading of that passage, doesn't it again dwell up within you a host of questions? Verse number 18 again makes reference to the fact that Jesus suffered. Although He suffered in the flesh, He was quickened by the Spirit. And then immediately the next verse, the inspired apostle launches into this observation, "...by which also He went," that He refers to Jesus... He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? Where is this prison? What is it that was the result of the preaching? For apparently here were individuals or at least some creatures that were blessed. Jesus directly preached to them. How did He do this? By what mechanism? Verse 20, we're told something about these spirits. It says which sometime were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. And immediately our mind launches back to the opening book in the Bible. The book of Genesis details for us a situation in which the world had become evil. It had come to the point in which God made determination, I'm going to destroy it. But there was one named Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6 verses 8 and 9. God gave him instruction whereby to construct an ark. But you and I remember, despite his preaching and despite his insistence, there were only eight that responded, himself and seven others. As all of that is detailed for us, we notice those who chose to be disobedient, those who chose not to have a responsive ear, at least in faith, to the preaching of Noah, these are the very ones that were preached to. And immediately your mind stretches along with mine. What's being described here? These people who died in the flood of Noah's day, they did not turn a responsive ear to the preaching of Noah. 
They did not heed the warning and the call of God through the preacher Noah. They died in the flood. Jesus later would say they were marrying and giving in marriage. They were going about their daily walk of life with no interest apparently in the things of truth and of God. Are we then to appreciate from a passage like this that after they died, Jesus preached to them in the realm of the Spirit, offering to them an opportunity to be saved, to respond one more time to the message of truth, to heed it and ultimately allow themselves to enter into heaven. Is that what this teaches? Is that the thoroughness? Is that the channel? Is that the character of this passage? You'll notice on that slide there's an assertion that I would bring to your attention. There have been through the ages those using this passage, among others, to make this assertion. The assertion is that after death, these people who did not respond in life to the preaching of Noah, they were given another opportunity by none other than Jesus Christ Himself, in which in preaching to them they were given the opportunity to respond in faith to that which they did not respond to while living in the flesh. And upon their response, they would be given the opportunity then and the blessing to enter into heaven. My question again, is that what this teaches? I make mention of it in the following way. The Restoration Movement was in fact rather greatly troubled by a passage like this one. Maybe you've heard of the name of Jesse Ferguson. He preached in the Nashville area about 165 years ago along with David Lipscomb and several others. Mr. Ferguson looked at a passage like this one and drew from it a number of things which, quite frankly, are scripturally not true. And one of them is the assertion I just made. The Bible does not teach that. Let's put that to rest right here and now. The Bible does not teach that that assertion is correct. This passage does not teach that Jesus directly preached to these spirits that were now long past the world of the flesh and into the world of the Spirit and offered them an opportunity to do what they never did in life. It does not teach that. What does it teach? Let's use the rest of our time tonight to do a better job of properly discerning that passage. Let's close that slide then and notice that controversy that I noted earlier. Jesse Ferguson and a host of others teaching things that are not biblically, biblically true. And let me even make a stronger statement. Denise and I, not more than three years ago now, it was a Sunday in which we were away from Pippin visiting somewhere else. It was not a gospel meeting in which I was preaching. And it just so happened that that morning that we were attending the Bible class at that location, and the very subject of the Bible class was this passage. And that gentleman used the 30 or 45 minutes allotted to him, and he preached a message that, quite frankly, was not consistent with biblical truth on the, on the matters we're about to discuss tonight. It was a rather sad thing to appreciate that what was taught confused and clouded the judgment of those individuals present in the class. And sadly, the teacher seemed unwilling to discuss anything further about alternate views differing from his on this subject. What does this passage teach? As you and I come to this slide, let me say, and I've entitled it, 
what I thought was a fair way. Surely, I think all of us as those believers in the Word of God and those who have a keen interest in rightly dividing it, something doesn't sound right about thinking that Jesus directly is preaching to these lost spirits and offering to them the chance again to do what they didn't do in life. Something just doesn't sound right about that. It sounds like it runs aground with respect to a many passages in the Word of God. Let me offer to you quickly some considerations and to see what you think. Wouldn't it be fair to say that several Bible truths are in fact apparently not correct if this thing is true? And not only that, there are certain other passages in the Bible which appear to be rather useless if again this is the case. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, would you consider with me Hebrews 9.27? The inspired writer pointing out so directly and so rather penetratingly, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. Did you notice with me? Judgment is asserted to follow death without an intermediate opportunity for additional preaching, without an intermediate opportunity for additional response, shall we say. The Bible sets before us, doesn't it, the directness and the character of what you and I recognize as that great day of judgment. But now keeping that in mind, could we add to that this? Doesn't it seem the case then that this thought, this appreciation that we have stated by way of assertion that Jesus preaches to these spirits that are lost and gone. How does that harmonize with that great gulf presented in that record of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16? You recall in verses 19 to 31 of that chapter, Jesus, as He rather directly spoke about this beautiful parable. I call it beautiful because of the power in it. In life, there was a rich man and he fared sumptuously every day. He had all the blessings and the things that this life and the flesh would have to offer. But there was a beggar named Lazarus. And this beggar was without so many things that in the flesh one would appreciate in life. But the text rather quickly notes that they both died. And Lazarus found himself in a place called Abraham's bosom. It was a place of comfort and bliss. But on the other hand, there was the rich man. He opened his eyes in torment. Now may I ask, what was it that this rich man pleaded for? He pleaded with Father Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and he might cool my tongue. He did not preach for Jesus to come preach to him. He didn't ask for that because that's not possible. That isn't possible. There's a great gulf fixed. And they that would pass from there to here cannot, and those on this side can't pass to that, that one either. May I say, the whole idea of using 1 Peter 3.18 to teach about the hope or the possibility of this intermediate state in which Jesus can preach to these spirits long since gone, that simply isn't biblically accurate. Look at number three. What else might we appreciate doesn't sound right about this? What about the picture of the judgment our Savior has given to us? In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, a description is given of the judgment. All nations were gathered. And you'll notice that there were several things asserted. 
There was a great division. There were those on the right, those on the left. And you may recall that the following assertions were made. Jesus, as He addressed one and then the other, He pointed out that you visited the sick, you visited the prison, you fed the hungry, you gave water, you gave drink to those that were thirsty. They asked, when did we see you like that? And Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. But as He addressed those on the other side, by the same token, he said, you didn't visit the sick, and you didn't take care of those in prison, you didn't look after the widows, those in need, you didn't provide for the hungry and the thirsty. And they said, when did we ever see you like this? Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, my brethren, did it not to me. The point is this. Why couldn't they at that point say, preach to us, Jesus. We'd like to obey the gospel now. But verse 46 says, those went away into everlasting punishment. They weren't given any additional preaching. There was no circumstances set before them whereby they could remedy the wrongs that had been done in life. Number four, what might we say about the basis of the judgment? Two passages I would ask you to consider in that one. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, did you notice we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Isn't that amazing? Now, these spirits that have long since gone, they're no longer in a fleshly body. They're no longer in that body in which it says the judgment will be based. What about Revelation 22, 12? One more time. Statements were therein made relative to the fact that the judgment will be according to what was done in the body. May I ask each of us to notice this idea then, this assertion, runs counter to all these passages that describe the judgment this way. Look at number five. Consider the impartiality of our God. Every one of us are quick to remember God is no respecter of persons, Romans 2.11. He judges everyone in accordance to that which is strictly in accordance to His will relative to their answer or lack thereof to the basis of judgment. And yet, in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 to 9, we note this, "...to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in flaming fire." taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May I ask, it says those that didn't obey the gospel and don't know God will be the subject of vengeance. Why couldn't they plead, Lord, preach to us? We'll love to obey you now. That was nothing available based on what the inspired apostle Paul wrote in a passage like that one. Maybe it is in light of those things we can add a couple more as well. Number six, may I ask, isn't there a rather needless urgency to the Great Commission if this idea that we have read by way of assertion is true? Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. If there is an opportunity after death, for a soul to still respond, then may I say the Great Commission isn't nearly as urgent as you and I have been led to believe. 
Because may I say, if Jesus Christ himself is going to stand before and preach to them, and he's a lot better preacher than any human being's ever going to be, a lot greater and more powerful, more penetrating, a lot more direct in his preaching, no doubt. If Jesus Christ himself is going to preach, but not until after they're dead, then what's the urgency of the Great Commission now? Number seven. We read in Revelation 14, verse 13, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Why is it so important to die in the Lord if Jesus is going to preach to me after I'm dead? May I say one by one, all of these verses are either contradicted by or appear to be rather powerfully needless if the way that some look upon 1 Peter 3.18 is true. One more time, what about number 8? In Ecclesiastes 9, verse number 5, we read that the dead know not anything. Because after all, did the writer on that occasion rather interestingly assert that a living dog is better than a dead lion? Isn't that true? Now, you and I know the lion's the king of beasts in many ways, but once that lion's dead, then we know even a dog would have more worth. Even a dog would have, shall we say, a greater opportunity for service. Now, might we be quick to say that doesn't mean that after you're dead you don't literally know anything, but what it means is you can't respond to what's going on on earth anymore. That opportunity has now been lost. Let's close that slide like this. For all these reasons, again, I've entitled it, it doesn't sound right. That assertion that some has made relative to 1 Peter 3 verses 18 and 19 simply isn't so. And so the question that rests then before you and me is what does this passage teach? And what would be a correct appreciation of it? Let's use the last slides and the last part of our lesson to attach and to consider that particular matter this evening. First of all, let's take it verse by verse and just allow the Word of God to tell us what's being described. First of all, verse number 18. For Christ also has, hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Peter has taken and placed so many beautiful thoughts right before you and me. First, Jesus in fact did suffer once the just for the unjust. He was the just one, and yea, all of us are the unjust ones. All of you and I, we're the ones guilty of sin. And yet Jesus, on one occasion, He went to the cross. That event which happened in the spring of A.D. 30, it will never be repeated. And the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 9 verses 24 to 28 highlights several times the oneness of that event. But with it, notice what else is found in the verse. That He might bring us to God. The whole purpose whereby our Savior went to the cross that way was so that you and I could be reconciled to the God of heaven. We had gone astray by virtue of our sins, and as such, He made a path, a means whereby we could come back to God. The verse ends then by saying this, Jesus put to death in the flesh... He really was in the flesh. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't merely a spirit. He really was in the flesh. In Hebrews 2.14 we read that with flesh and blood 
He went to the cross. But that verse quickly closes by saying, quickened by the Spirit. They did bury the body of our Lord. But on that Sunday morning, up from the grave, He arose by the power of God, Romans 1 verse 4, and it is that which is a timeless witness to the fact He is the Messiah. He really is who He claimed to be. But that thought takes us directly to the next verse. Verse number 19, By which also He went and preached unto the spirits in prison. As you and I come to 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and following, would you please notice with me carefully the language that's utilized. It says, by which also he went. How did Jesus go and preach to these spirits in prison? Was it in bodily form? Did he literally himself go? No. It says he went by the Spirit. By which, that's a prepositional phrase, that identifies the means, the channel by which the Lord went. He did not personally go Himself. He went by the Spirit and preached to these spirits in prison. You'll notice that with that, that highlights then a very different matter than what some have asserted relative to a passage like this one. But you'll notice with me the very bottom thought. The text says, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. The wonderful message, the message that was approved by Jesus, was preached by someone else. Let's go to the next slide. And let's use that point to highlight this. And may you and I take very seriously one interesting lesson. Those who preach that beautiful message of the gospel... Those who preach that message authorized by heaven, those who preach that message are the very ones that are approved by the Lord. May you and I take seriously then to lift up the hands of those who preach that truth. For you'll notice here, by which also He went. Notice that He is Jesus, but He preached through the medium of another. Preached unto the spirits in prison. Now, at this point, we're ready to ask more carefully about those spirits in prison. Who were they? Where were they? And what were the details of this preaching? First of all, it says, verse number 20, which sometime were disobedient. Which sometime were disobedient. First thing you may note with me, these individuals that were preached to through the agency of the Spirit. They had been disobedient in life. That is to say, they were individuals who themselves had chosen to shun the message of truth. Though presented to them, they had chosen not to obey it. That's what the word disobedient means, isn't it? They literally did not obey. But he's very quick to say, when once the long-suffering of God waited, when did the preaching take place? While the ark was preparing. Noah's the one that did the preaching. Now put all that together with me. While the ark was preparing, Noah is called a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2 verse 5. He insisted, he preached, he instructed, he set before the individuals of that day the coming flood and the reality of an angry God. 
But people chose to be disobedient. They turned a deaf ear, if you please, to those messages of preaching, and they did not respond in faith. Again, he identifies when this preaching took place. The preaching did not occur after they died and in the spirit realm by Jesus personally. Noah was the preacher. Preaching to them the coming flood and the reality of their needfulness of obedience, but they were disobedient. May you again notice with me a powerful truth. Verse number 19 had said, "...by which he went and preached." Now that says Jesus preached, but it was preached to the agency of Noah. Those who preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, those who preach the truth of the gospel, they're preaching the message of Christ Himself, and it's just as if Jesus Himself was preaching. Isn't that strong? Isn't that powerful? When a gentleman preaches to you and me the words of this book, and does so in truthfulness, soundness, fidelity and allegiance to that which is the will of heaven. It's as if Jesus Himself is preaching to us. No wonder we should respect so highly those who preach the words of this book and those who stand four square upon it, never deviating from the right or left, but always proclaiming it in its urgency, in its needfulness, Note again the language. It says Jesus went, but it was through the Spirit of another, in this case Noah, doing the preaching. And therefore, when you and I read about Paul and Peter and James and John and the others of the Bible, who so beautifully and with such urgency preached the message of heaven, it's no wonder that they were speaking the Word of God. Doesn't it remind you a bit about the opening pr pronouncements of the book of Jeremiah? There that prophet Jeremiah who labored in such a difficult time, a people who were so unrepentant. And yet God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I've put my words in thy mouth. Whose words? God said, mine. And where'd you put them? In Jeremiah's mouth. And therefore what Jeremiah preached and what he proclaimed, it was the word of God. And so it was that what Noah preached, Jesus Christ Himself was carrying forth that message by virtue of the Spirit. Isn't it amazing then, as you notice, these individuals who were disobedient in life, this passage says nothing about them being given an opportunity after death to obey again. At the time of death, all those opportunities are gone. There are no more. And these disobedient spirits, now notice how this final passage puts it, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Who was saved? The eight, not the disobedient ones. They were disobedient in life, and they died lost. Peter holds out no hope for them being saved. Jesus didn't preach to them after they were dead. Verse 21 says, the like figure. Now he drives this point home. Those people who were disobedient in life, those who, to whom Noah preached the precious message of response to God, don't you realize the like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us? The ark could have moved them upward to safety if they'd only responded in faith. They could have boarded that ark and been saved. 
And Peter writes, don't you know baptism in principle is the same thing for us? Those who submit to baptism and respond in faith to God, they'll be the ones saved, just like Noah and his family were then. The like figure whereunto even baptism also saves us. He quickly states, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and this same Jesus. Rather than preaching to those and giving them this additional opportunity, it says in verse 22, He is gone into heaven. Where is He? He's on the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers being subject to Him. There is but one message the Master has given. This message that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul stated it like this, Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. There is no other message. And it's not possible to respond to it after death. Now's the day of salvation. Now's the appointed and accepted time. As you and I draw near the close of our lesson tonight, Let's do so with these brief statements of conclusion. We have taken an opportunity to look again at a passage that has been the subject of some controversy, with, upon a first reading, some thinking that there's an opportunity after death where Jesus Himself may have preached to some people directly. That isn't so. It simply isn't so. This time is the only time we have. While you and I live in this flesh... And the day will come when we will stand before God in judgment and give answer for the deeds done in the body, in this body of flesh. And so it is, you'll notice on that slide, this passage describes a group of people to whom God in favor offered an opportunity while Noah preached to them, but they would have none of it. They chose to be disobedient and to be rebellious. And in that disobedience, that's the way they died. And that's the way they're going to stand in judgment. May you and I not make that mistake, and may we not be that foolish, but may we have an ear that will hear with earnestness the message sent to us from God now and respond now. In Luke 13, 24, Jesus was asked, Will there be many saved? And He said, No, few will be saved. Don't you want to be numbered amongst those few? those who die in the Lord, those who are ready for the judgment, those who've lived in such a way that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed their sins and they can in fact in peacefulness close their eyes in death ready for the day of judgment to come. If tonight you're not ready for the day of judgment, place no hope for being given an opportunity after this life. I know that the Catholics teach purgatory and other religious movements and bodies have added many things to it, but those are unbiblical and the Bible just does not endorse them. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to anyone in your response to the gospel's call of invitation, the song of encouragement is going to be sung in a moment. And it's a song that is intended to dwell within you and me with a time of opportunity. If you need to respond, walk down this aisle. A congregation loves you, and even greater than that, the God of heaven loves you. And Jesus, so much so that He died for you and He pleads with you. If anyone would need to respond initially, the gospel demands, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have done that, 
and you've known what a blessing of life that is, but you've strayed from faithfulness, come back to your first love tonight. Let this day, the 14th of May, 2017, be a day of rededication. Jesus pleads with you to come, and so too do we. And to do so at once, while together we stand and while we sing.